Chapter One of In the Mayor's Parlor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford, Middlebury, Vermont, USA. In the Mayor's Parlor by J. S. Fletcher. The Mayor's Parlor. Hathelsborough Marketplace lies in the middle of the town, a long, somewhat narrow parallelogram, enclosed on its longer side by old gabled houses, shut in on its western end by the massive bulk of the great parish church of St. Hathelswood, Virgin and Martyr, and at its eastern by the ancient walls and high roofs of its medieval moot hall. The inner surface of this space is paved with cobblestones, worn smooth by centuries of usage it is only of late years that the conservative spirit of the old borough has so far accommodated itself to modern requirements as to provide footpaths in front of the shops and houses but there that same spirit has stopped the utilitarian of to-day would sweep away as being serious hindrances to wheeled traffic the two picturesque fifteenth-century erections which stand in this market-place these high cross and low cross one at the east end in front of the moot hall the other at the west facing the chancel of the church remain to the delight of the archaeologist as instances of the fashion in which our forefathers built gathering-places in the very midst of narrow thoroughfares under the graceful cupola and the flying buttresses of high cross the country folk still expose for sale on market days their butter and their eggs around the base of the slender shaft called low cross they still offer their poultry and rabbits on other than market days high cross and low cross alike make central open-air clubs for the patriarchs of the place who there assemble in the lazy afternoons and still lazier eventides to gossip over the latest items of local news conscious that as they are doing so their ancestors have done for many a generation and that old as they may be themselves in their septuagenarian or octogenarian states they are as infants in comparison with the age of the stones and bricks and timbers about them grey and fragrant with the antiquity of at least three hundred years of all this mass of venerable material still sound and uncrumbled the great tall towered church at one end of the market-place and the square heavily fashioned boot hall at the other go farthest back through association into the mists of the middle ages the church dates from the thirteenth century and though it has been skilfully restored on more than one occasion there is nothing in its cathedral-like proportions that suggests modernity the moot hall erected a hundred years later remains precisely as when it was first fashioned and though it too has passed under the hand of the restorer its renovation has only taken the shape of strengthening an already formidably strong building extending across nearly the whole eastern end of the market-place and flanked on one side by an ancient dwelling-house once the official residence of the mayors of hathelsborough and on the other by a more modern but still old-world building, long used as a bank, Hathelsborough Moot Hall 
presents the appearance of a medieval fortress as though its original builders had meant it to be a possible refuge for the townsfolk against masterful baron or marauding scot from the market-place itself there is but one entrance to it an arched doorway opening upon a low-roofed stone hall in place of a door there are heavy gates of iron with a smaller wicket gate set in their midst from the stone hall a stone stair leads to the various chambers above in the outer walls the windows are high and narrow each is filled with old painted glass a strong grim building this and when the iron gates are locked as they are every night when the curfew bell an ancient institution jealously kept up in hathelsborough rings from st hathelwood's tower a man might safely wager his all to nothing that only modern artillery could effect an entrance to its dark and gloomy interior on a certain april evening the time being within an hour of curfew which to be exact is rung in hathelsborough every night all the year round sixty minutes after sunset despite the fact that it is nowadays but a meaningless if time-honoured ceremony bunning caretaker and custodian of the moot hall stood without its gates smoking his pipe and looking around him he was an ex-army man bunning who had seen service in many parts of the world and was frequently heard to declare that although he had set eyes on many men and many cities he had never found the equal of hathelsborough folk nor seen a fairer prospect than that on which he now gazed the truth was that bunning was a hathelsborough man and having wandered about a good deal during his military service from aldershot to gibraltar and gibraltar to malta and malta to cairo and cairo to peshawar was well content to settle down in a comfortable berth amidst the familiar scenes of his childhood but any one who loves the ancient country towns of england would have agreed with bunning that hathelsborough market-place made an unusually attractive picture on a spring evening there were the old gabled houses quaintly roofed and timbered there the lace-like masonry of high cross there the slender proportions of low cross there the mighty bulk of the great church built over the very spot whereon the virgin saint suffered martyrdom there towering above the gables on the north side the well-preserved masonry of the massive norman keep of hathelsborough castle there a score of places and signs with which bunning had kept up a close acquaintance in youth and borne in mind when far away under other skies and around the church tower and at the base of the tall keep were the elms for which the town was famous mighty giants of the tree world just now bursting into leaf and above them the rooks and jackdaws circling and calling above the hum and murmur of the town to bunning's right and left going away from the eastern corner of the market-place lay two narrow streets called respectively rivergate and meadowgate one led downwards to the little river on the southern edge of the town the other ran towards the widespread grasslands that stretched on its northern boundary and as he stood looking about him he saw a man turn the corner of meadow gate a man who came hurrying along in his direction walking sharply his eyes bent on the flags beneath his feet his whole attitude that of one in deep reflection at sight of him bunning put his pipe in his pocket gave himself the soldier's shake 
and as the man drew near stood smartly to attention. The man looked up, Bunning's right hand went up to his cap in the old familiar fashion. That was how, for many a long year of service, he had saluted his superiors. There was nothing very awe-compelling about the person whom the caretaker thus greeted with so much punctilious ceremony. He was a little, somewhat insignificant-looking man, at first sight. His clothes were well-worn and carelessly put on. The collar of his undercoat projected high above that of his overcoat. His necktie had slipped round towards one ear. His linen was frayed. His felt hat, worn anyway, needed brushing. He wore cotton gloves too big for him. He carried a mass of papers and books under one arm. The other hand grasped an umbrella which had grown green and grey in service. He might have been all sorts of insignificant things, the clerk, going homeward from his work, a tax-gatherer, carrying his documents, a rent-collector, anxious about a defaulting tenant, anything of that sort. But Bunning knew him for Mr. Councillor John Wallingford, at that time mayor of Hathelsborough. He knew something else, too, that Wallingford, in spite of his careless attire and very ordinary appearance, was a remarkable man. He was not a native of the old town, although he was, for twelve months at any rate, its first magistrate, and consequently the most important person in the place. Hathelsborough folk still ranked him as a stranger, for he had only been amongst them for some twelve years. But during that time he had made his mark in the town, Coming there as managing clerk to a firm of solicitors, he had ultimately succeeded to the practice which he had formerly managed for its two elderly partners, now retired. At an early period of his Hathelsborough career, he had taken keen and deep interest in the municipal affairs of his adopted town, and had succeeded in getting a seat on the council, where he had quickly made his influence felt and in the previous November he had been elected, by a majority of one vote, to the mayoralty, and had so become the four hundred and eighty-first burgess of the ancient borough to wear the furred mantle and gold chain which symbolized his dignity. He looked very different in these grandeurs to what he did in his everyday attire, but whether in the mayoral robes or in his carelessly worn clothes, any close observer would have seen that Wallingford was a sharp, shrewd man, with all his wits about him, a close-seeing, concentrated man, likely to go through, no matter what obstacles rose in his path, with anything that he took in hand. Bunning was becoming accustomed to these evening visits of the mayor to the Moot Hall. Of late, Wallingford had come there often, going upstairs to the mayor's parlour, and remaining there alone until ten or eleven o'clock. Always he brought books and papers with him. Always, as he entered, he gave the custodian the same command. No one was to disturb him on any pretext whatever. But on this occasion, Bunning heard a different order. "'Oh, Bunning,' said the mayor, as he came up to the iron gates before which the ex-sergeant-major stood, still at attention. "'I shall be in the mayor's parlour for some time to-night, and I'm not to be disturbed, as usual. Except, however, for this. I'm expecting my cousin, Mr. Brent, from London this evening, and I left word at my rooms that if he came any time before ten, he was to be sent on here. So if he comes, show him up to me. 
but nobody else, Bunning. Very good, your worship, replied Bunning. I'll see to it. Mr. Brent, from London. You've seen him before, said the mayor. He was here last Christmas. Tall young fellow, clean-shaven. You'll know him. He hurried inside the stone hall, and went away by the stairs to the upper regions of the gloomy old place, and Bunning, with another salute, turned from him, pulled out his pipe, and began to smoke again. He was never tired of looking out on that old market-place. Even in the quietest hours of the evening there was always something going on, something to be seen, trivial things, no doubt, but full of interest to Bunning, folks coming and going, young people sweethearting, acquaintances passing and repassing. These things were of more importance to his essentially parochial mind than affairs of state. Presently came along another corporation official whom Bunning knew as well as he knew the mayor, an official who, indeed, was known all over the town, and familiar to everybody from the mere fact that he was always attired in a livery the like of which he and his predecessors had been wearing for at least two hundred years. This was Spizey, a consequential person who, in the borough rolls for the time being, was entered as bellman, town-crier, and mace-bearer. Spizey was a big fleshy man with a large solemn face, a ponderous manner, and small eyes. His ample figure was habited at all seasons of the year in a voluminous cloak which had much gold lace on its front and cuffs and many capes around the shoulders. He wore a three-cornered laced hat on his bullet head and carried a tall staff, not unlike a wand, in his hand. There were a few, very few, progressive folk in Hathelsborough who regarded Spizey and his semi-theatrical attire as an anachronism and openly derided both, but so far nobody had dared to advocate the abolition of him and his livery. He was part and parcel of the high tradition, a reminder of the fact that Hathelsborough possessed a charter of incorporation centuries before its now more popular and important neighbouring boroughs gained theirs, and in his own opinion the discontinuance of his symbols of office would have been little less serious than the sale of the mayor's purple robe and chain of solid gold. Spizey, thus attired, was Hathelsborough, and, as he was not slow to remind awe-stricken audiences at his favourite tavern, mayors, aldermen, and councillors were, so to speak, creatures of the moment. The mayor, for example, was his worship for twelve months, and plain Mr. Chips the grocer ever after. But he, Spizey, was a permanent institution, and not to be moved. Spizey was on his way to his favourite tavern now, to smoke his pipe, which it was beneath his dignity to do in public, and drink his glass amongst his cronies, but he stopped to exchange the time of day with Bunning, whom he regarded with patronising condescension as being a lesser light than himself. And having remarked that this was a fine evening, after the usual fashion of British folk, who are for ever wasting time and breath in drawing each other's attention to obvious facts, he cocked up one of his small eyes at the stairs behind the iron gates. "'Worship up there?' he asked, transferring his gaze to Bunning. "'Just gone up,' answered Bunning. Five minutes ago.' 
the mace-bearer looked up the market-place down the river gate and along meadow gate having assured himself that there was nobody within fifty yards he sank his mellow voice to a melodious whisper and poked bunning in the ribs with a pudgy forefinger ah he said confidingly just so again now as a corporation official though not to be sure of the long standing that i am what do you make of it make of what demanded the caretaker spizey came still nearer to his companion he was one of those men who when disposed to confidential communication have a trick of getting as close as possible to their victims and of poking and prodding them again he stuck his finger into bunning's ribs make of what says you he breathed ay to be sure why of all this coming up at night to the moot hall and sitting all alone in that there mayor's parlour not to be disturbed by nobody whomsoever what's it all mean no business of mine replied bunning nor of anybody's but his own that is so far as i'm aware of what about it spizey removed his three-cornered hat took a many-coloured handkerchief out of it and wiped his forehead he was in a state of perpetual warmth and had a habit of mopping his brow when called on for mental effort ah he said that's just it what about it do you say well what i says is this here taint in accordance with precedent precedent mark you which is what an ancient corporation of this sort goes by where should we all be if what was done by our fathers before us wasn't done by us what has been must be take me don't i do what's been done in this here town of hathelsborough for time immemorial well then that's just it said bunning well then why shouldn't his worship come here at night and stick up there as long as he likes what's against it precedent retorted spizey ain't never been done before never haven't i been in the office i hold nigh on to forty years seen a many mayors aldermen and common councillors come and go in my time but never do i remember a mayor coming here to this moot hall of a night with books and papers which is dangerous matters at any time except in their proper place such as my proclamations and the town documents and sitting there for hours doing what bunning shook his head he was pulling steadily at his pipe as he listened and he gazed meditatively at the smoke curling away from it and his pipe well he said after a pause and what do you make of it you'll have some idea i reckon a man of your importance once more the mace-bearer looked round and once more applied his forefinger to bunning's waistline his voice grew deep with confidence mischief he whispered mischief that's what i make of it he's up to something something what'll be dangerous to the vested interests in this here ancient borough ain't he allus been one of them radicals what wants to pull down everything what's made this here country what it is didn't he put in his last election address when he was candidate for the council for the castle ward that he was all for retrenchment and reform didn't he say when he was elected mayor by a majority of one vote that he intended to go thoroughly into the financial affairs of the town and do away with a lot of expenses which in his opinion wasn't necessary 
Oh, I've heard talk. Men in high office, like me, hears a great deal. Why, I've heard it said that he's been heard to say in private that it was high time to abolish me. Bunning's mouth opened a little. He was a man of simple nature, and the picture of Hathelsborough without Spizey and his livery appalled him. "'Bless me!' he exclaimed. "'To be sure,' said Spizey, "'it's beyond comprehension. To abolish me. What, in a manner of speaking, has existed I don't know how long.' "'I ain't a man. I'm an office. Who'd cry things that were lost, at that there cross?' Who'd pull the big bell on great occasions and carry round the little un when there was proclamations to be made? Who'd walk in front of the mayor's procession with the mace, what was given to this here town by King Henry the Seventh, his very self? Abolish me? Why, it's as bad as talking about abolishing the Bible. It's the age for that sort of thing, remarked Bunning. I seen a great deal of it in the army. Abolished all sorts of things they have there. I never see no good come of it, neither. I'm all for keeping up the good old things. Can't better em in my opinion. And, as you say, that there mace of ours, tis ancient. Nobody but one of these here radicals and levellers could talk of doing away with such proper institutions, affirmed Spicey. But I tell you, I've heard of it. He said, but you scarce believe it. There was no need for a town crier, nor a bellman, and as for this mace, it could be carried on Mayor's Day by a policeman. Fancy that now, our mace carried by a policeman. Dear, dear, said Bunning, don't seem to fit in, that. However, he added consolingly, if they did abolish you, you'd no doubt get a handsome pension. Pension, exclaimed Spizey, that's a detail. It's the office I'm a-considering of. What this here free and ancient borough would look like without me, I cannot think. He shook his head and went sadly away, and Bunning, suddenly remembering that it was about his supper-time, prepared to retreat into the room which he and his wife shared at the end of the stone hall. But as he entered the gates, a quick firm footstep sounded behind him, and he turned to see a smart, alert-looking young man approaching. Bunning recognized him as a stranger whom he had seen once or twice before, at intervals, in company with Wallingford. For the second time that night he saluted. "'Looking for the mayor, sir?' he asked, throwing the gate open. "'His worship's upstairs. I was to show you up. Mr. Brent, isn't it, sir?' "'Right,' replied the other. "'My cousin left word I was to join him here.' "'Whereabouts is he in this old fortress of yours?' "'This way, sir,' said Bunning. "'Fortress you call it, sir, but it's more like a rabbit warren. No end of twists and turns. That is, once you get inside it.' He preceded Richard Brent up the stone staircase, along the narrow corridors and passages, until he came to a door, at which he knocked gently. Receiving no reply, he opened it and went in, motioning Brent to follow. But before Bunning had well crossed the threshold, he started back with a sharp cry. The mayor was there, but he was lying face forward across the desk, lifeless. End of chapter 1